Assalamu alaikum everyone. You are listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. This is a podcast where we talk to Muslim women in academia about their research, their life journeys, their experiences in academia, area of expertise, and anything and everything in between. You can find this podcast on all major platforms by searching for the words Academic Muslimas. Please support Muslim women in academia by listening in every other week, subscribing to this podcast, leaving a review, and sharing it with friends and family. So today I'm speaking with Nazita Lajawardi, who is a political scientist and an attorney at Michigan State University. She has her JD from University of San Francisco and her PhD in political science at UC San Diego. She's also affiliated with Context Networks and Participation Project, where she lends her expertise on civic skills, political participation, and peer effects. She has a recent book out with Cambridge University Press titled Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia. Assalamu alaikum, Nazita. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey into academia? You have a GD, but then you also go, went ahead and pursued a PhD. Uh, what was your motivation there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those stories uh, where I, I wish it, it was a better story. <laughs> uh, I graduated college in 2009 at the height of the economic recession. And I, you know, was, was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I just knew that a career in law was a lot more stable than a career in, in anything else. But my heart was always in academia. I was doing research while I was an undergraduate student. Um, I had a professor who uh, was guiding me through, through a research project. And I just, I knew I really wanted to do this. And I go to law school and you know I had the great privilege of working in criminal law and really you know beginning to build the foundations of a career but my heart was always um, tied to, to academia it was always tied to questions surrounding inequality and race and ethnicity um, and I think working in criminal law made me see that uh, it made me see up close how our institutions matter for the outcomes and daily lives and incorporation and arguably the democratic inclusion of minoritized populations. And I was, I don't know, it was a big leap of faith and a big risk to study for, you know, the, the GRE exam. And I was very lucky. I, I was very fortunate because along the way, you know, I learned so much um, about, the, about the world and how to ask questions. And so I don't have regrets, but I was definitely among that population of students who kind of wanted a more stable uh, education during, during that time. Well, I'm so glad that you made that journey because now we have you in academia and that's amazing. Um, so part of your research is also on civic skills and peer effects. What does that mean within the political sphere? Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting when we think about context and how context might be shaping our political attitudes, our voting behavior, our non-political participatory behavior, like just even engaging in protest or going to community meetings. Sometimes when we think about politics in this world that we live in, we think so much about the resources that I have, for instance, do I have, you know, how does my gender play a role? How does my race play a role? Do I have a sufficient income? Do I have education? What are these factors that drive my participation in, in, in the democracy and the polity? 
But the research that we're, we're doing with my colleagues in Sweden and what the acronym is, is COMPOL, is it looks at how does the context affect you? So what does it mean if you live in a certain neighborhood and in your neighborhood, there are politicians who live there? Is that going to affect you? Ooh. What does it mean when you go to a classroom and you have the kids of politicians in your classroom? Does that affect political participation? What does it mean when voter turnout is just higher among your neighbors? Is that going to affect you? And not only is all this going to matter for you to vote, you know, the first time you can, but do, do these shape lifetime voting behavior? Does maybe interactions with elites, does that shape your propensity to run for office yourself? How does your context formulate this? What does it mean when you're an immigrant to a country and you go and you live in a place where there are other co-ethnics there, but they participate a great deal in politics? Does that shape you? How does all of this matter? How do your context matter for, for your outcomes later? And of course, we know that, you know, political participation is a statement, you know, taking a stand and playing a role in shaping the outcome of a country is a signal of your, your membership in that country. And I think that, you know, trying to think about context and how it can also influence you aside from just your demographic characteristics or whatnot, it just, it, it makes the lens a little bit wider when we think about these questions. That's really fascinating. I've never thought of it that particular way, especially considering that oftentimes we're not responsible for the context that we are born into and the context that we grow up in and how that might impact our political participation for life. Exactly, exactly. It's, and it's a very hard thing to measure. You know, I mean, part of it is that we just simply don't have a lot of that data. You know, we don't really know where people have been living and we don't know who their neighbors are and we don't know who they went to primary school with and we don't know who their parents married or, you know, we don't have this kind of information in our data. And so typically we don't, we can't really measure this in a, in a very systematic way. I think it's really great because in Scandinavia, we have the type of data that allows us to connect people and we can see it for decades and decades. We have individual level data. We know where people reside. We know about their health history. We know about their neighborhoods. We know about their employment. And so it's something that's collected here and that's shared with, with academics who want to do research and understand context. And so, you know, I've been very privileged to be able to, to learn from this group and to work with this data. Wow, that is really fascinating work. Speaking of political participation and how our context impacts us, I know that you also talk about the pan-Muslim identity. And I wanted to ask you, like, how realistic is this idea of pan-Muslim identity? It's something actually I've also talked about in my own writing. But, you know, Muslims are super diverse, both politically, ethnically, language-wise, and even theologically, Muslims are diverse. I mean, some people don't think so, but obviously we know so. And even Muslim Americans don't unite on any one of these axes. So what does a pan-Muslim identity entail? And is it a useful identification? Yeah, so pan-ethnicity is a really interesting concept. And for some of your listeners who may not be familiar with the term, I'll just briefly explain. Pan-ethnicity is a group label that's imposed on you and not necessarily one that you select into. And so for instance grouping together all Latinos and saying, you are a Latino, but ignoring the cleavages of, are you from Mexico? Are you from Argentina? Are you from Brazil? Are you from Peru? All of these different places, 
they have, of course, very different histories. They have different populations. They have different governments. <laughs> they have different, I mean, just they, they differ on a number of levels, but it almost doesn't matter because in the minds of the public and in the institutions and in the laws here, it, the label is being imposed on them, right? It actually erases the differences in a way that those important characteristics that give us identity, just to simplify things for the public, those are gone. And, yeah. and that that's a really frightening thing. I mean, the same thing could be said about Asian Americans, right? When we talk about Asian Americans, that term often includes South Asians. And then among <laughs> South Asians, of course, there's like meaningful differences. Would someone from Korea, South Korea, feel okay being lumped with someone from Malaysia or being, you know, how much similarity is this among these, these groups? So pan-ethnic identities are oftentimes deleterious and they often minimize important heterogeneities that give groups identities and they simplify things, they oversimplify things. And I argue that the same has been done to Muslims. This group in America of Muslims could not be more diverse, as you said, they could not be more different. One fifth of American Muslims are black, you know, one third are South Asian. According to the recent Pew uh, 2017 data, 7% identify as Hispanic. We have enormous differentials. And it's not just along, of course, racial lines, it's along class lines. Mm -hmm. um, it's along immigrant histories and the laws under which we all could, for those of us who have immigrant backgrounds, who, how we could, we could immigrate. So the selection of the populations differ based on who's coming from where. Right. On top of that, as you've noted yourself, right, we have differences in sect as well, you know, and so these enormous differences that matter, of course, for the lives and the outcomes that we experience in this world are almost made invisible because this Muslim label has been, has been put on us. And so that's what I mean about pan-ethnicity. In some ways, however, I just do want to say that the Muslim identity, at least politically, has, has something, it's something that it was attempted to be leveraged in politics in the year 2000. First started in 96 with the Clinton election, mm -hmm. where Muslims tried to organize behind Clinton. And then in 2000, there was an effort to organize behind Bush among some Muslims. And then, of course, with the tragic events of 9-11 and the resulting, you know, wars in the Middle East that saw hundreds of thousands of Muslim lives just obliterated around the globe, you know, Muslims became, again, for a while there, they, they became invisible. And they're obviously due to a number of institutional changes, right? The Patriot Act cannot be ignored. The powers that it afforded to law enforcement really did affect the lives of Muslims. And it, you can see that at least in response to, to 2016 and the massive amounts of discrimination that ensued by elites, actually Muslims mobilized during this period. They almost, they almost took over that term, you know, and they almost said, okay, yes, there is a Muslim identity and we're going to use it. Right. We're going to use it. We're going to come together. We're going to build coalitions. And we're hyper aware that these coalitions are going to be politically meaningful because we are being directly affected by what's happening in the political realm. Right. I mean, we're being discriminated in virtue of our identity. And that identity then becomes super salient and takes over other aspects of identities like our sect or our ethnicity and so on and so forth. So Absolutely. definitely. Yeah. And so in your book, Outsiders at Home, you talk about what you call a Muslim American resentment scale. How is this scale developed in your book in terms of capturing American attitude towards us, towards Muslim America? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. So this is a scale. So it's nine survey questions that I ask survey respondents about. 
These nine questions are developed by me having turned to the European ed psych literature. There's a massive literature in Europe right now where people are developing measures to understand how hostility towards Muslims is shaping attitudes towards Muslim students, the discrimination that Muslim students are facing in school. They're trying to understand how teachers' attitudes towards Muslims are having like meaningful impacts on these students' educational outcomes. And what had happened was that up until that point, I had not seen anyone try to measure these types of stereotypical items towards Muslims. It just I hadn't come across it. And that's really a shame because we have that for other groups, but we're just using these sort of stereotypical items about, for instance, African-Americans trying to say this tells us something about Muslims, but yeah. perhaps, you know, there's something more specific about Muslims, you know, perhaps there's stereotypes that are very unique to Muslims and we should, we should treat every group with care because every group experiences a unique form of racialization and discrimination that cannot be grouped together. There's trauma and harm being leveraged against so many different populations. And so develop the scale by adapting a lot of the measures from Europe and then thinking about stereotypes about Muslims here in the United States. And so that's how I developed it. And essentially these are nine different statements about Muslims and they capture stereotypes and you take the average of them and together they, they tell us a story about how Muslims are perceived. So what were some of the findings of, of this question or of this survey? Yeah, so I've used the Muslim American Resentment Scale in a, in a number of studies and surveys. And in the book, I bring, I, I bring evidence of 10 different surveys in which I've used it. And they consistently show that Muslim American resentment is among the most powerful predictors of supporting Trump. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. After partisanship, it's Muslim American resentment in 2016. Obviously, we're still (laughs) waiting for 2020. (laughs) Uh, It's the unique timing uh, which we're speaking right now. But I don't think much would have changed on that one. But yeah. I also find that Muslim American resentment matters for shaping attitudes towards the Muslim ban towards the proposal that Ted Cruz put put ahead in in 2016 to patrol low-income Muslim neighborhoods towards evoking a Muslim registry and many other policies as well. And so these are policies that have been suggested by our elites in presidential debates. You know, they're not not unrealistic and and it's a hostility towards Muslims that, that really does doesn't matter. Yeah. Speaking of the Muslim ban, so a lot of people don't know, but obviously you must, which is that I don't know if they don't know or they've purposely forgotten or otherwise just forgotten. But under Bush, the United States developed a system for registering non-citizen Muslim people within the United States in 2002 as part of the war on terrorism. And there was support of registry, registration, there was domestic registration, and our men were fingerprinted and registered and photographed and interviewed. And there was not much of a reaction at that point, why do you think that the non-Muslim American reaction to Trump's Muslim ban was so different from the reaction to Bush's Muslim registry? Yeah, so I think that's that's a really good question. And I think it's an important conversation that we should be having as a, as a public. Actually, I don't think we have this conversation enough. And so I'm really happy that you brought it up. The Muslim ban, I think, was a bit different, though, in the Bush administration's program. The Bush administration's program, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, was a system to, to register some non-citizens once they entered the U.S., and then portions of it were suspended in 2011. The whole program was scrapped in 2016. Not many people were aware of it. It didn't get the type of attention. It wasn't as highlighted. No no president ran on that. Yeah. Um, it obviously endured through the Obama administration. 
And, you know, it obviously violates all sorts of rights, because of course, a majority of the people who were being uh, entered into this program were from predominantly Muslim countries. And so it could be made to argue that the program was targeting people based on their religion. The Muslim ban was different, though. It was it was a wholesale ban, you know, of people from Muslim countries who cannot come. And of course, there there was there was the suddenness of it all, right? It was one of the first actions the president took upon yes. taking office within a week of taking office, you know? And so I think the the shock of it all in the media coverage and also the framing of it as being by the media and by elites across partisan aisles that it was aversive to American ideals and background and foundations insofar as it discriminated based on religion and that people came to America to escape religious persecution. And here we are, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, having it be the first act by our president in, in, in office, but it was rather a shock to the country. And I think the images of people in airports, you know, all over the country, you know, protesting, I think, I think that landed, you know, with the public. With the Bush administration program, the National Security Entry-Exit Program, that was a bit different, you know, it was a registry, but it was, from what I understand, non-citizens and only some of them, it was pretty secretive and portions of it had been, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of very few people actually understood what was happening among the general public. Even within the immigration system, there was very little understanding, like a lot of people reported for their interviews and they were turned back because even even INS themselves didn't know what they were doing because it just came down. Uh, there was a lot of confusion on what was required at that time. Yeah, and I think it took coordination among a number of different organizations in 2016. I think it was after the election, if I recall, that asked uh, President Obama to terminate the program. So the program as it stood was uh, suspended, but now is just an overall registry, not based on religion, not based on where you come from, but it's just an overall registry of anyone who enters for the sake of maintaining records on all immigrants that come into the country. But I wanted to ask about the reaction. So you mentioned the airports and people were protesting at the airports. There were lawyers doing pro bono work at the airports. What did this latest reaction of many liberal allies, especially white liberal allies to the ban mean for Muslim Americans politically? Is there a way to capitalize on that? I think Muslims did capitalize on it. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people of color did. I just, I want to say that this was not unique to Muslims. You know, Muslims certainly were targeted at the outset. Um, but I mean, 2017 saw a rise in hate crimes against African-Americans, against American Jews. It was really, obviously the border wall, <laughs> all these comments about MS-13. I mean, if you belong to a minoritized group, it was almost impossible to escape attack, especially at the beginning of the, of the Trump administration. Of course, it's endured. And so I think what we saw in 2018 was really interesting. We saw this wave of the woman, you know, running for, for office. And we saw so many more. We, I think we had a historic number of women of color who were elected to Congress. We saw so many people be motivated and be be mobilized into politics. I think, you know, in response to this, this political and institutional discrimination, you know, as my colleague Castro Squee would say, you know, people, people responded through mobilization. And some of my own data has shown this. Some of my own work has shown that throughout the 2016 campaign, actually, the more that Muslims were targeted by Trump, the less that they were posting on Twitter. But a subset of Muslims actually became more vocal. They became more mobilized. And so I think in the wake of all this, you do see a selection of these 
of these groups, Muslims included, rising and taking space, which, which I think is, is wonderful. Definitely. So given all of this, the circumstances that we're in, now we have President-elect Biden hopefully coming in in January. What do you see next for Muslim Americans politically? How should we be moving forward? As we've seen, Muslims have built really important alliances with the progressive arm of the Democratic Party. And I see this being a very fruitful alliance moving forward. This alliance is inclusive of religious backgrounds, gender backgrounds, sexual orientation, racial immigrant status, I mean, you name it. And I think that there is a very appropriate space for Muslims to take up here. And I'm very encouraged by the Muslim leaders who have run for office and have won because you can see very clearly that not only are they accepted into the fold, but, but they're very treasured and they're important voices. And they bring so much representation to Muslims in this country. Definitely agree on that. And with that, like I would want to recommend to everyone, again, your book, Outsiders at Muslim, The Politics of American Islamophobia, which just came out this year with Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for giving your time, Nazita. It was really enlightening to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I really appreciate this. It's a beautiful space. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.